Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. What is up, podcast fam? Really excited about this episode. On this episode, I had my good friend Todd Arkey on the show. Todd was uh, one of the co-founders at Seamless. I think everyone at this point knows of Seamless, but for those of you that don't, essentially, if you're in any major city, it is the easiest way to order from restaurants for delivery. And um, I'm sure they would explain it totally differently. But yeah, I have used and spent insane amounts of money ordering food via Seamless. Amazing technology, amazing platform. On this episode, we dive into Todd's story, his loss with his dad, and much of his professional journey from becoming a lawyer to co-founding Seamless to a lot of passion projects of his, being a board member involved with experience camps, and now the EVP ShareBite. For any younger kid, high schooler, or college student, you know, looking to get some advice on how to really build a thoughtful life, both professionally and personally. This is an awesome episode. So with that, enjoy. Thanks for coming on the show. So pumped to have you on. I know you listened to a few episodes now. You know, I started this podcast really because I wanted to create a platform to inspire people, I wanted to create this platform to be a beacon of hope for people facing tough times and ultimately help people know that life's filled with adversity, but they can overcome and build a life that they love. And typically, I like to kick these off by asking my guests to share a little bit about their story and hoping I can I can hand the baton to you to dive into a little bit about your loss and share a little bit about your story. Sure. Happy to be on with you, Sir Danny. So I was born in Miami, uh, where I grew up through high school. My father died when I was 12 years old, and it's obviously an unbelievably impactful loss in our life. I had a really strong, still have a really strong mom who really helped me and, and the rest of the family sort of manage that process and, and sort of deal with things as they came. You know, I think it may sound strange, but sort of other than that incredibly major event in my life and impact on my life, like I was very fortunate in a lot of other ways. You know, my family was stable financially, and I sort of didn't want for a lot as a kid. And I was raised sort of, I think, the right way with the right morals and values and things like that. Academically, things went well for me, and I had a lot of really good friends, and I just had a lot of positive things in my life to help counterbalance this like major, major disruption in my life and loss in my life. I ended up going to college, University of Michigan, as you well know, because you've seen me wear lots of different Michigan uh, paraphernalia. Yeah. And I had an ama- amazing college experience. Some of my best friends to this day are friends I made on my freshman year hall at Michigan. And after graduating Michigan, I was a history major. I went to law school in New York at NYU, uh, made some other really, really close friends there, and ended up after law school working as an attorney for 
brief period in Washington, D.C., and then a couple of my close friends from law school had an idea for a business. Uh, at the time, it was called Seamless Web. It's an online food ordering service with a corporate focus, selling into banks, hedge funds, law firms, and the like. They convinced me after a few conversations to quit my job as a lawyer in D.C. and move back to New York and do that with them. And I did that, and I was there for 10 years. And ever since that experience, we ended up selling the business, and I stayed for a couple of years after that. So after 10 total years, I left that business and have been very active as an advisor, investor in early stage businesses, and in a few cases, gone in as an operator to help young businesses that I had invested in or my friends had invested in to help them grow in the early stages. Yeah, awesome. Well, appreciate all the, the background and context. Taking it back to when your dad died, you're 12 years old. I guess at that age, how did you deal with, with loss? I was 12, and I didn't really know how to deal with loss. My mom, again, was a really strong person in our life. And she believes very much in therapy. And so I went to a number of different therapists. I really didn't find one that I kind of gelled with that I felt super comfortable with, which was disappointing for her and for me. But I really went and stuck with it for a long time because I knew how important it was for her um, and for her peace of mind. But other than that, I kind of just went about my business. I think, you know, having met a lot of people along the way, and, and obviously both of us are super involved with experience camps, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But met a lot of people who experience loss at an early age. Whether you know it or not, you're kind of presented with two paths. You can kind of go the rebellious path and the, the world is against me type path, and which is understandable, but can also be very destructive. Or you can kind of make a different choice and, and try to do right by yourself, if you will. And you know, fortunately, because I had the support that others may not be as, as fortunate to have, and because of just sort of how I dealt with the experience, I ended up kind of I never veered too far from the path. I, I would maybe make the argument that I should have gone through a little bit more of a rebellious period. I, I never had like a, a very rebellious period in my life. I think I maybe would have benefited in some ways from having a little bit of that, but I stayed pretty straight and narrow through the process. You know, I wasn't someone who liked to talk about my dad very much and my loss. And, you know, I really didn't choose to even up to the, like, even when I was an adult or in college, I usually had to become very close with someone, either as a girlfriend or a friend before I sort of go into my whole story and my dad's death and circumstances around his death and sort of the impact on our family, which was not just my immediate family, obviously. But then I ended up getting involved with experience camps. And now I talk about it on a more than I ever would have imagined that I talk about it because, you know, I immediately tell people who are interested in learning about camps about my personal story. Even if I just give them a sentence or two, it's still a lot more than I used to talk about it. Would you say that you really started opening up or started sharing more after you got involved with, with experience camps? Absolutely. By like a factor of 10,000. Got it. So I've interviewed a lot of people now who've been involved with experience camps. So I'm sure most, if not everyone who listens to this is probably sick of hearing experience camps, experience camps, but you helped essentially get that off the ground. I know there's some backstory there, but you helped take the camp from originally the first year of 27 kids to over a thousand kids now. So I'm curious, what, what has that been like to see the organization grow from, you know, just 27 kids. Like, I'm curious what that has felt like to see it go from uh, something just so small and you were just getting started to now what it is and what it will become. So the quick backstory is that my mom had gotten involved with an organization called Circle Camp or Circle of Tapawingo is, the, is how they started. And it really was um, the fact that a camp that she had gone to as a kid growing up, a camp called Tapawingo in Maine, one of the alums 
decided they wanted to do something good for society and good for bereaved kids. And so they started a program a few years before we did an experience camp, really focused on young girls who had experienced the loss of a parent or a sibling. And my mom, because it was a camp that she used to go to, heard about it. And she started to volunteer every summer as a counselor and also as a donor and just got very involved with that organization. And so the family really cheered her on in, in those efforts. I never went to one of those camps, but I certainly supported her involvement. And then a few years later, they were looking, Circle of Tapawingo was hoping that a boys camp in the area in Maine would do something similar. And it took them a while to find a boys camp to do something similar, but the owners of Camp Manitou in Maine uh, decided to do that very thing. And so they decided to start what we call Manitou Experience, but it's since become Experience Camp. And so, I heard about this. My mom called me and said, you're never going to believe this, but we finally found a boys camp to do a similar program as the one that we do. And it's actually Camp Manitou. Now, side note, I had actually gone to Camp Manitou one year growing up as a camper. And it happened to be the year after my father had died. So uh, I had gone to another camp called Camp Samoset for years. A lot of my friends from home went to a different camp, Camp Manitou. They were always like, oh, you should come check out Camp Manitou. You'll love it. You'll love it. And I was always of the opinion of, well, I'm really loyal to my camp. I don't want to go to a different camp. But the summer after my father died, I think I and my mom both felt like it would be nice to be with some very close friends from home. And so I ended up going to Camp Manitou and having a very positive experience there. So anyway, my mom introduced me to Sarah Darren, who is one of the owners of Camp Manitou and the, the executive director of this new endeavor, uh, Manitou Experience, which became Experience Camp. I called Sarah and said, hey, my, here's my name, here's my background. My mom has met you a couple times in the process, and I'd love to help out. And Sarah said, great, here's what we're going to do. You're going to be a volunteer. This is our first summer. We don't really know what we're doing, but it's going to be amazing. And uh, we're all really excited, and so you're going to come and, 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 and do this with us. And so I did. And it was that first summer, as you said, we had 27 kids. It was one of the most impactful, moving, inspiring weeks ever for me. Meeting all these kids, seeing the impact on them of meeting lots of other kids who've had a similar loss, who could sort of get it and understand where they're coming from, bonding with those kids, bonding with the counselors. It, was, it just was, I mean, I could do an entire podcast talking about that for summer for sure. And then I just started getting more involved. How do I help with fundraisers? So along with someone named Will Gilmore and Sarah, we sort of spearheaded the initial fundraisers for the organization, uh, which again started with probably 50 people the first year. And now we get, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people packed in, in a big ballroom. And so I got more and more involved. I came back every summer as a volunteer, which I thought was great. I got to see my kids, you know, from year one, grow up a few years and, and be their counselor year after year. And then I was asked to join the board. And so I was on the board for a few years Then I was elected to chair the board. So I did that for a couple of years. Uh, I still am on the board and still volunteer every summer uh, for experience camp. So it's what's it been like? It's been, you know, incredibly rewarding for me. You know, it's something which I know you feel the same way because we've talked about it, but just I feel like I get so much out of it as far as the people that I've met along the way, the kids that inspired me along the way. I love the startup world. You know, I was involved in the startup world for 10 years with a business with friends of mine. I've been involved with lots of other early stage businesses. And I really like the energy that, you know, the early stages of a business or nonprofit all that energy that's swirling around. I love that. I love figuring things out when there's not a, a real playbook to work off of. Uh, once things get kind of settled and, and known, I still can find joy in that, but it's not as much. You know, my, my favorite year of college was my freshman year when I didn't know anything and everything was new and I showed up in the wrong building and felt stupid, but that was funny. And, you know, I just love experiencing things for the first time or the second time. And so with this organization, I got to do that thing that I like generally, but also it's such a meaningful organization. It does such important work. It does work that I would have 
benefited from greatly as a 12 year old or 13 year old. And there's so many good things that come out of it. People in my community, I live in Westfield, New Jersey, tons of my friends have become huge supporters of the organization. One of my friends in Westfield, Evan Bloomberg, has become a volunteer and a, and a board member alongside me in the organization and taken on a very active role. And so it's really galvanized all these different constituencies, friends of mine, people I've met in professional realms, people I've met growing up, like, and all has created sort of the connected tissue around this really amazing organization that's doing great work. So I'm thrilled to be part of it, you know, can't envision a scenario where I'm not an active participant. And I guess to meet people like you as well. Yeah. And I think um, one of the things that I'm always amazed each summer are the kids, their bravery. And I think it's just a very inspiring week, spending the time with these kids, hearing their stories. I think one of the things that fascinated me from the first summer was just it didn't matter if you spoke with a 16-year-old, someone who was 30, 40, 50 at camp, or the 9-year-old or 10-year-old, you all sort of got it and were able to speak around death and understood what you all experienced in some ways. Obviously, grief is different for everyone, and everyone's story is their own story, but you all share that underlying loss, and I think that that's truly a unique unique experience. Right. Absolutely. And not to uh, disagree with anything you said, but just I would do want to point out a number of the volunteers haven't experienced a major loss in their life, um, but they still come to volunteer because they believe in the program's mission and they want to be helpful. And I think, you know, even the owners of like Sarah, for instance, who's the executive director, she had not experienced the loss of a close family member, even when she decided to start this and be the executive director, which I, I don't know, something about that really you know, makes me feel even more strongly about how amazing it is what she's done. And so, yes, there is definitely a connection between the campers who all have lost someone, and there's a connection between the, the volunteers who've lost someone and speaking with the campers. But in addition, some of the, the best volunteers we have have never had that experience, but they just want to be there for the kids you have. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always amazed that at the people I've recruited, some people also have, have never experienced loss, and they ask, hey, I'm a little bit nervous about coming to camp. I didn't experience any any significant loss in my life. Will I fit in, et cetera? But I'm always really amazed and taken taken back by those people as well because you are giving up a week of your life to go and volunteer. And um, it's always very moving to see those people come and volunteer and get so involved. Yeah, definitely. I would also want to give a shout out to my wife, Melanie, and my sister, Lisa, both of whom have been volunteers at Experience Camps as well, in addition to a lot of, a lot of my friends who've uh, been huge supporters of the organization. Ooh. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to talk a little bit, like, I think it's interesting how, you know, you, you also started the Shared Grief Project. Are you still doing that now or? I am. I am. Yeah. Uh, it eats up from time to time. So just for the, uh, the folks who are listening, uh, Shared Grief Project, really, I, I left camp after one of the summers that I was volunteering and, you know, we're thinking about how amazing it is to watch the kids share their stories with one another. And even in many cases, the counselors sharing some of their stories with the kids. And I thought to myself, there had to be some, you know, celebrities slash athletes who lost a parent or a sibling or someone close to them when they were young. And wouldn't it be great if I could get them to sort of share their story and words of encouragement and inspiration for the kids. And so I sort of started a, a side kind of pet project uh, called the Shared Grief Project and have now interviewed a number of athletes and celebrities uh, who share their story and their advice and their encouragement for kids and, and what we edit together to be, you know, five to seven minute videos. So people like Kyrie Irving, who's an NBA superstar, uh, Freddie Freeman, who's a, a Major League Baseball star, Rowan Marley, who's Bob Marley's son, who I actually grew up with in Miami, or Brian Greasy, a former NFL quarterback, Gabby Reese, who is a, one of the best female volleyball players slash models, and a number of other folks. 
So that's something that we put together as a free resource, the website at sharedgrief.org, where kids can go and watch videos of these folks. There's some third-party content also on there. Their discussion guide. So for instance, some of the some clinicians I've met have said they use it, especially with kids that are very, very reticent to share their story. They'll watch one of these videos with the kids that sort of is very positive and, and optimistic type, type of stories of loss, but then huge success following that loss in their life. And their discussion guides, which the clinicians can go over with the student, with the with the kids, and it really according to a lot of clinicians I've talked to, really help the kids to sort of feel comfortable opening up about their own thing. You know, they'll watch and say, you know, Kyrie Irving in the video said that, you know, he really still to this day gets upset when he's filling out forms and he fills out information related to his dad. And then it says, you know, mom's information. And he leaves that blank because he lost his mom when he was four years old. And when he's telling that on the video, he gets emotional and he needs a minute to sort of collect himself. Totally understandable, but it's really moving. And so, for kids to see Kyrie talking about that, um, Kyrie Irving, who's you know NBA superstar, super famous, super accomplished at a very early age, it really helps kids who watch that to then feel more comfortable opening up about their own story. Yeah. So through that experience, I'm curious. You've you've obviously interviewed a lot of people who've gone on to do incredible things, athletes, celebrities, and like even in the Experience Camps Network, there's a lot of people who are actively building incredible businesses or built incredible businesses. Like, do you think grief has, or loss, I guess, facing that adversity, has anything to do with later on life success? So I do. I don't know to what extent, uh, you know, I would agree with that, but I agree with it sort of generally. I know Malcolm Gladwell, one of his books talked about sort of vision, inordinate amount of sort of uber successful people who had experienced loss at an early age. And I've certainly met a lot, a lot of people who fit the bill along the way. I do think sort of going back to what I was saying early on when we were talking, you know, they're not only two paths, but there seem to be two main paths when someone experiences something so dramatic or traumatic at, at an early age. And I do think for a number of young people, they choose to go down a path that which helps them to actually focus on their future and to sort of realize a lot more of it's in their own hands than they would like to admit. And maybe they take things a little bit too seriously, but in taking it seriously, maybe that helps them to be successful in a number of those situations. So in my own case, I sort of not so jokingly joked about, you know, I didn't really have a very rebellious period. I kind of dealt with the stuff I needed to deal with. Uh, I didn't use my loss as a sort of internally as an excuse for not accomplishing things or not doing things or not doing well in school. And so I think that helped me as I, you know, progressed through life. Again, the difference between someone going down that path and going down a path that maybe would be less productive, maybe one or two moments in their life or one or two people who got involved in their lives and helped them sort of stay on a more productive course. I mean, I have my dad's closest friend, somebody named Bruce Greer, who's his law partner and best friend. I call him Uncle Bruce to this day, sort of that's how close our families are. And when I found out my, my dad had died, I was actually at camp and my mom came to, to get me at camp and tell me the news. And then we went back to Miami. And I just remember the next day, just our house was filled with people like family, friends, you know, neighbors, et cetera. And it was so you know, overwhelming is, is an understatement. And also virtually no kids because all my friends were at camp or doing something else. And so it's like my sister and I and then like 300 adults in our house. Mm. And a lot of the adults tried to comfort me, uh, tried to give me words of encouragement, tried to say nice things about my dad. A lot of them honestly weren't able to physically. Like I, a couple, one couple, my friend's parents came up to me and actually started to try to say something comforting and, and literally couldn't get the words out, which is something that really sticks in my memory for a number of different reasons. But the most impactful thing that anyone said to me during that whole period 
much of which is very hazy anyway to begin with. But my Uncle Bruce said to me something I didn't know then is he looked at me and said, I want you to know, you know, my dad died when I was 12. And he's like, I don't know if you knew that. And I didn't. But him saying that sentence really, even though I didn't realize it in the moment, was such a support like beam for me. And when I think about what we do at Experience Camp, for me, it's like that moment is what a lot of the kids get to experience on a grand scale. Uh, when they meet so many other kids and so many of the adults, and even when they get to watch a Kyrie Irving, to me, that's like fortifying something for them that hopefully will will serve in a way to catapult them forward. Yeah, makes complete sense. It's interesting. I mean, I was talking to a few people in the Experience Camps Network. It was just my mom's birthday, and I posted an article on Medium that I titled Grateful in Grief. And um, I was just sort of saying how going back to like, you know, you sort of have like these two roads. Are you going to be rebellious? How are you going to sort of channel your your energy following your loss? And I guess for me, I was thinking about it and just like reflecting a little bit on, obviously, I lost both my mom and my dad now to cancer. And um, for me, losing them sort of brought me to experience camps. It sort of opened me up to this whole world that I never knew about around childhood grief, around loss, things of that nature. And I was sort of describing to some people I wrote in this article how in some ways I'm not grateful that I lost both my parents, but I am grateful that now as a result, I'm able to have this impact. You know, I'm involved with two camps and I'm starting this podcast and hope it reaches more people who are experiencing loss and things of that nature. And I do think in some ways I'm able to have a much greater impact because of what I've experienced because it sort of opened up my eyes and I stumbled into camp this way. Yeah. Absolutely. I feel very similarly. So not to jump around a little bit, but I want to um, shift gears a little bit to discuss your professional journey. So you went to Michigan. I read you were actually an API. That is true. So I had no idea. So I guess you know the, the secret handshake. <laughs> no, the secret handshake. <laughs> I do. I do. I have a nephew who's now an API at Syracuse. And I uh, went to go visit him in his, his API house at Syracuse in February. And I will say that I thought I lived in a disgusting fraternity house and I, I did. His was multiple times more disgusting. So shout out to Aiden. <laughs> Funny because I went to Syracuse and I was an API and I lived in that house and for two years and that house was, that house needs to be taken down. Yeah, it was great because we were, I, I, I brought my nephew, uh, Justin with me and Aiden told us when we saw his house, that he was the house manager. Oh, that was my job. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. I got to introduce you to you. But our response was, what would the house look and smell like if not for you? Like, what? how much worse could this house possibly be? And you're the house manager. It was really, really funny. I mean, I don't know if it's changed, but when I was there, if you were the house manager, it was the worst job. So you got the best room. So maybe he got the perks of having the, the best room. But um. Actually, I'm not sure there's a best room in that house, to be honest. <laughs> so I transferred there and I moved into what was called the, the shit closet. And they <laughs> called it that because before I moved in there, I transferred. I had no like housing credit. So I got the worst room and they essentially added this room and they called it the shit closet because before me, what lived there were, were ducks. So they had like ducks there for several semesters. And Amazing. yeah, it was disgusting. <laughs> so you went to Michigan, then you graduate, you go to NYU. Was your plan always to become a lawyer? It was. I think it, it was my plan. It was also my plan because I didn't have another plan. My dad was a lawyer. My grandfather went to law school and practiced law for a while. 
you know, I did things like, you know, debate when I was in high school. And so people are like, oh, you're, you're be a lawyer. They kind of told me that I would be and seemed like a natural course. And, you know, I was a history major undergrad and, and NYU. I had a really positive experience at NYU. And I ended up, I didn't want to work as an attorney in New York just because it's like far and away the most intense place to be a young attorney. And also my mom got remarried when I was sort of towards the end of high school to my stepfather, David, and they now live together in Chevy Chase, Maryland, which is right outside of DC. So I decided to interview with DC firms when I was in law school and I ended up getting a job at a great firm called Arnold and Porter. And so everything sort of, you know, I went right from college to law school, law school to Arnold and Porter. And yeah, so that, that was sort of my path at that time. I read that when you were there, you, you advise on various things, but one was national sweepstakes and rules. Yeah. <laughs> funny. Do you see the documentary with uh, the McDonald's, McMillions? Yes, I did. I was fascinated by it. I would say I wasn't at the firm that long, and that was one of my shorter projects, but I did you know, do a little bit of research. Uh, one of our clients was looking to do some sort of sweepstakes, and they needed to know what kind of disclaimers they needed based on the different states in which they operated. So yeah, I also worked for like the Red Cross about sort of like the protocols for blood testing and so they could cover themselves in case they there were any lawsuits around sort of hepatitis C, which was a big issue of the day. And I also worked early stages of companies like mp3.com when it came to like ripping music off the internet, um, okay. Napster and, and the like. And that was one of the more interesting things that I learned about right before I uh, left the firm. But what happened was, you know, two of my best friends from law school, uh, Jason Finger and Paul Applebaum, both super entrepreneurial we're both at firms, working at firms as associates in, in New York, and they came up with the idea behind Seamless and Seamless Web at the time. And, you know, essentially, they called me and I was more a sounding board, a friend, you know, hey, what do you think of this idea? You know, I talked through it with them a bunch. I helped them raise some money when they decided this is something they really wanted to go after. And then once they sort of decided they were going to go all in and, and leave their firms and go do this, they called me one day and I got sort of a conference call, like two of them on the line calling me from, they were in separate places, which I know is very typical now. But at the time, that's the first time I ever had two of my friends call me in a conference call together. Like I was like, what's going on? Is everything okay? <laughs> and then they said, you know, look, we're, you know, this is all happening. And we decided that you need to quit your job and move back to New York and come do this with us. And so I was, you know, excited about the opportunity, but it took me about a week to really wrap my arms around the idea of quitting my job, changing careers, leaving DC, which I was living in DuPont Circle, I had a great apartment and was having a lot of fun, had a lot of nice friends, was near mom and, and stepfather and, and my stepsister and her family. She had young kids. And so talked to a bunch of people about it and eventually was encouraged and convinced that it was the right move for me. So I ended up doing just that. I left my firm and moved back to join them. This was in April of 2000 and we didn't have a website. We didn't have a piece of marketing material. We certainly didn't have any clients, but I joined the team. What was your title or like role as a responsibility then? I was chief sales officer and really my focus was building up the corporate clientele. So Seamless Web started with as a corporate focused software. So we would go and sign up companies that ordered lots of food into the office. So think hedge funds, law firms, investment banks and the like. So my team would go and sign the companies up. And then we had another team that signed up the restaurants and the caterers. And the idea was companies could order through this one website, you know, from all the different restaurants and caterers in the area, and they would get one consolidated invoice with all the data they needed to input into their accounting system. That's sort of the very, very quick version of what we were focused on. Was it weird? So you went from a lawyer to essentially like biz dev sales. So how, how do you make that? That's like totally different transition. So how did, how did you make that big change? So how did that come about? 
Yeah, I've done some sales jobs in college. You know, I was the guy who sold T-shirts for big parties that were coming out and sold different sort of party favorites and things like that to sororities that had formals and things along those lines. I also was involved with an organization called the Student Buyers Association at University of Michigan. So I, I was actually the president of that organization. And that helped to, on the one hand, you had sort of providers of goods and services to sororities, fraternities, and co-ops. And the fraternities, sororities, and co-ops could then purchase through this organization and get discounts and consolidated billing and things like that. And so I had some relevant experiences, although sort of at the college level. And I've always been a bit of a schmoozer and comfortable talking to people. So I felt like it was a natural fit. And Jason and Paul sort of decided from day one, like, we're going to call Todd and here's what we're going to want him to do, which is run the corporate side of this business. And so, you know, I sort of agree with them that I was, you know, a natural fit, even though I didn't have a lot of sort of B2B sales experience in the real world. So I'm assuming most people at this point know of Seamless. I feel like everyone's used Seamless, at least if you're in a major city, for sure. But like, I know even I'm in Long Island now and you can still use Seamless. There's restaurants on it. So at what point did the business start to take off? I mean, it took us a few years to really, you know, once the site was fully built out uh, and we had sort of our initial clients, uh, which were typically pretty friendly firms that helped us on our path. But I would say a few years in, we had an article in the New York Law Journal. Uh, They had interviewed Jason, who was our CEO. And I remember the moment, the day that article came out, we had like a party with some friends. We never had like a big launch party or anything. We were very, very focused and we were not this startup story where like, you know, you spend millions of dollars partying before you actually get any dollars in the door. We were very, very focused on, you know, hitting our goals, moving on to the next goals, hitting our goals. We always said the next 90 days is the most important and that we said that all the time. But there was this article that came out in the New York Law Journal. I remember that night we had gone to dinner with like maybe... 30 friends all got together and this article came out while we were at dinner and the owner of the restaurant, which is one of the restaurants on our platform, printed it out for us and brought it to us. We read this article over like, kind of felt like at least, you know, at that point it felt like we really had arrived. And it's interesting because a lot of people ask like, weren't you nervous to leave a a steady, you know, career path and leave and go to a startup? with two of your friends who hadn't done a startup before and you hadn't done a startup before. And like, it was a totally new concept of online food ordering and billing. And and the answer I typically give is yes. However, we didn't really have anything to lose at that moment. Like when I left my law firm, I had become very friendly, uh, worked closely with Jim Sandman, who was the managing partner of the firm. And on my way out, he sort of said to me when I told him, he said, look, I hope this works out. Like, good luck. Sounds like an interesting idea. If it doesn't, the door's open for you. We'd love to you know, bring it back if, that, if there was an opportunity to do that. So that made me feel really comfortable. However, once you get to a startup like I did, and once you start to get some momentum, and once you feel like you've attained even an early, early amount of success, then you have something to lose. So I, it actually got much more nerve wracking once we attained some success, because now if something goes off the rails, um, which certainly there are more than one opportunity for that to happen. If that ended up failing, you would have been like, oh, we had this great thing. We had this exciting momentum. We could have taken it somewhere incredible, but oh, we never got there. And so that's where things got more nerve wracking than at the very beginning. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So obviously building a startup is incredibly difficult. So curious, when when you started building Seamless, what would you say were like some of the earliest challenges or biggest challenges that, that you faced? So one of the biggest challenges we faced was just getting in the door, both with restaurants and with companies. So I can speak more intelligently about the company side, but uh, we had some friends who worked at these firms because we had all gone to NYU law school together. So a lot of our friends were first year, second year associates at law firms. 
and many of them helped to open doors for us, but it's not like they were partners of the firm. They couldn't, with one email, immediately get us to the right person who would immediately agree to meet with us. So that was a challenge. So it was a lot of cold calling and trying to get your name out there and going to events for like, for instance, the, the ALA, which is the Association of Legal Administrators. I would go and just schmooze all the legal administrators that I could, but it was hard. And, you know, they also, you wanted to be taken seriously. So we're a bunch of relatively young entrepreneurs that were going to, to big established companies and firms and trying them, trying to get their decision makers to agree to try something that's never been tried before. So I think that was a challenge. On the restaurant side, we had restaurants laugh us out of the restaurants. I didn't do much on the restaurant front, but my colleagues would come back very demoralized. They went to a restaurant that we knew was really important to get on our system. And they were just told, not only are we not going to sign up with you, like we're never, ever, ever going to sign up with you. So don't even bother coming back, <laughs> which is not the message you're looking to hear. But you got to keep smiling on your face. You got to keep plugging away. And we did that. And as we got more firms, we got more restaurants. As we got more restaurants, we got more firms. And then you start to add to your team. So someone who is near and dear to both of us, Wiley Cerilli, was like a 19-year-old kid who showed up for an interview. And we all sort of just like were so impressed by him. And then we wanted to hire him. And Jason, I remember Stephanie Finger, who's Jason's now wife, then longtime girlfriend, and a huge part of Seamless's success. She interviewed Wiley and went to Jason and said, I don't care what happens. You've got to get this guy to, to come work for us. And Wiley was considering some other options. And Jason then locked in. And when Jason locked in, like game on and locked in and had like a marathon dialogue with Wiley. And eventually Wiley decided to come and join us. And I'll never forget, like the first week that Wiley came to join us, it was decided he was going to help sign up restaurants. And maybe we signed up two or three restaurants a day. And that's with a few of us, you know, all trying to work on it me in my spare time when I wasn't focused on the corporate side. One of the first days Wiley came back from a day sort of around town and he just had like crumpled up papers in his hand. We're like, <laughs> what, what are those? He's like, oh, just contracts. I just, we're like, how many contracts did you sign? He's like, I signed 10 contracts. And we all looked at each other and while we were excited, we were kind of like, what are you telling the restaurants? <laughs> like, what, what's your pitch? Like, what are you promising them? Because that's kind of insane. But you know, you know Wiley and that was just Wiley. And so, that sounds very wily. You start to bring that kind of energy and talent into the mix and it's just your team gets bigger and better and faster and stronger. And it's really, really fun to see that. Seeing very similar things with Experience Camp. Was it a, a merge or you guys were acquired by Grubhub? So we sold Seamless to Aramark in 2006. And there was part of the deal that was an earnout that kept uh, the core team intact to help hit certain benchmarks so we could earn more money towards that purchase price over the next few years after the deal. So that kept me there until 2010. After I had left and, and most of the team, senior team had left, Seamless merged with Grubhub. Important to note, Seamless was a significantly bigger business at the time, but the two companies merged. The number three player in the space was so far down the totem pole that it really made a ton of strategic sense for number one and number two to merge. And Seamless was very, was very corporate focused, although we had a consumer application as well. Grubhub really started out as a pure consumer play. And so those companies merged and kept the Grubhub name most places, although, as you well know, in the New York area, it's still called Seamless. So what was that experience like? Like you took this business and it was over the span of 10 years? I was there for 10 years, yeah. So what was it like seeing this go from nothing to, you know, exiting the business ultimately? What, what, was, that, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, it was an incredibly fascinating, exciting experience that, uh, you know, I feel so fortunate to have had and, and having done it with so many close friends, including people I started with that were some of my closest friends and, and are to this day, and some of the new folks that joined the mix who I became very close with. 
Yeah, it's, you know, on the one hand, it's mind blowing, right? Like I remember there was a Saturday Night Live after the blackout one year uh, in New York, there was a Saturday Night Live and the opening skit, they mentioned Seamless. And you're just like, look, my wife and I look at each other like, that's kind of crazy. And to this day, I get in a subway car that's like wrapped in one big Seamless ad. And I kind of feel like I'm on like being John Malkovich or some weird movie like that, where I'm like, what the universe is speaking to me. But at the same time, to be honest, when people ask me, why are you leaving your law firm job to go do this? That sounds crazy. At the time, what I told them, not that I was overly prescient or anything, but I was like, look, people are getting more and more comfortable buying things online. People, everyone orders their pictures online. Again, this is 2000. You know, I think they're getting comfortable and food seems like a real natural thing to do online. No one likes calling their local restaurant that's super busy and there are people screaming in the background. I'm trying to explain that here's exactly how my wife likes her salad and I need this on the side. And like, no one likes that. So it seems like a very natural thing that if I look out in the next 10 or 20 years, I would think everyone's going to order their food online. That only made sense to me at that point. And that's what I told people as to why I was sort of quitting my job, taking a huge pay cut, moving back to New York and doing this thing with my friends. And that really played out. So not to say I had no doubts along the path till today, but it did sort of in the most simplistic way make sense to me that logically this is a business that, that was going to work if executed properly, which is no small if, but important. Yeah, execution's obviously so critical to being successful. Seamless is obviously such an iconic brand, I feel. You can't go to a major city without, obviously, if you live there, you're ordering food online at this point. What does it feel like to have built a brand or a company that carries that name? I think, you know, it's great. And it's opened a lot of doors for Jason, Paul, Stephanie, myself, Wiley, a host of us, which is really cool. It's like, you know, if you're in like the NBA and you're part of like the San Antonio Spurs, if you're on the coaching staff, then other teams want you to join their coaching staff because you get to bring with you all the experience and lessons learned being part of a successful organization, somewhere with like the Patriots is another example. So I've, I've gotten to benefit from the fact that people know how involved I was with that organization and, and want me to be an advisor for their company or Jason Paul and I invest in a ton of companies together. And, you know, it's really been a springboard into a lot of different things. It's also let us, you know, we've all, the three of us have all been very involved with a company called Slice. Um, we got connected by Wiley, actually. Um, and Slice is a company that is really helping small chain and independent pizzerias compete effectively against what I would call big pizza or what they call big pizza and I call big pizza, you know, Domino's, Papa John's, Pizza Hut, by having tens of thousands of smaller players banded together and using upgraded technology and marketing and purchasing power and things like that. And so we only got involved with that company because we had been involved with Seamless early on. Similarly, as you know, I'm now working with a company called ShareBite. You know, while the business we built at Seamless on the corporate side was innovative and new and, and quite successful in getting market share, there have been no, really no other companies that have gone after that sector, the corporate food ordering sector. And quite honestly, ever since the merger between Seamless and Grubhub, that combined entity has focused much, much, much less on the enterprise clients and almost exclusively been focused on the direct-to-consumer business, the sort of the people at home. And so there's an opportunity for a strong competitor to come into the corporate space. And so this company, ShareBite, that I got introduced to is doing just that. We've got a strong social mission, which is for every order that's placed on the platform, meals are donated to help combat childhood hunger. And so I've joined that company as the head of business development and working very closely with them. And what we're actually doing is going to a lot of the biggest and largest ordering clients that have been using Seamless for many years, many of which I signed up personally or someone on my team signed up, and we're getting them to switch off of the Seamless slash Grubhub platform and onto the ShareBuy platform. Got it. 
that's awesome. Yeah, it seems like you've stayed in that uh for the most part stayed in uh a similar path as it relates to that uh food ordering delivery business for uh much of your career. So you're obviously an extremely accomplished entrepreneur, founder, investor, and I think we can pretty much agree that there's a lot of young, hungry college students, high school students who will listen to this and say, I want to be just like Todd Arkey. What advice would you give someone who's just finishing up college, about to head into the real world? And I guess also, what advice do you think they should ignore? So I think my biggest piece of advice is not to be intimidated by others. There are a lot of successful venture capitalists, successful entrepreneurs, but in large part, people don't really know what they're talking about. That's people on Wall Street, that's people in startup community. And I don't say that in an obnoxious way. I really say that in a way to encourage people that they are just as likely as anyone else to start a successful business. And so if they have a good idea, uh, if they have folks that they want to work with, they should, you know, assuming sort of they can check all the other boxes that they would want to check to feel comfortable doing it. It's sort of like, instead of like, if not me, if not them, then who? And, you know, I speak to a number of different like college and business school classes. And it's something I like to just mention because, you know, people often look and say, oh, this guy knows this famous founder. So he's got it in the bag. I can't compete with that guy. Or I have an idea, but someone else is trying to do it also. I might as well let them take it. Like, I just think that if you really have a passion for being an entrepreneur and you have the resources and your life sort of enables you to do that, don't be intimidated by the fact that other people are in the mix. Don't think that others know a ton more than you do because the likely scenario is they do not. Mm. Yeah, I can, I can resonate with that. What advice do you think people should ignore? Well, I can tell you that uh, Jason, Paul, and I were told by a number of very bright people that there was zero chance that our business idea was ever going to you know, get off the ground and that we were crazy to try it and stupid to leave our job. So you know, I think that if you can take in all the advice, but then sort of layer on top of that only the advice that comes from within and from your closest group of friends, I think that's my advice. So my suggestion would be like, hear it all. Because they're all interesting data points, they're all different opinions. And even some of the opinions that you think are stupid off the bat, like just take them in, but then go to your inner circle and talk to those people. Because, you know, for me, my best friend's name is Kerry Levine, and he's one of the guys I met in college and lived on my hall freshman year. And when I was deciding, when Jason and Paul called me and said, We want you to come back to New York and do this with us, I was deciding whether I was going to do that or not. I remember I called Kerry, and Kerry, who I must tell you, is not one to give out the compliments all that quickly. He said to me, he's like, look, if you, Paul, and Jason can't make something like this work, I don't know anyone who could. He's like, I think you guys would be an amazing team. And that really helped move me sort of off the fence and into the category of let's do this. And not only because I agreed with him, you know, that we could be a good team, but I also just really trusted him to give me the advice that was the real advice, not the advice that he thought that I just wanted to hear. Hmm. That makes sense. What about for like people just coming out of school? It's like a weird time to be applying for jobs, obviously. I'm curious yeah. if you have any advice around that. I do. Yeah. I mean, I certainly feel for folks who are going to deal with the much different job market that they were anticipating and rightfully so anticipating. But, you know, I do think that periods of disruption in the business community tend to open up a ton of opportunity. So if you look like Seamless was started in 2000, right as the sort of tech bubble was bursting. A number of very well thought of companies and highly successful companies 
started right around the time of the financial crisis. So their disruption and the chaos that ensues does create a need for people to be entrepreneurial, to be creative. And so to the extent we're talking to recent grads or soon to be recent grads who want to be entrepreneurs, even though it doesn't feel great coming out to this type of job market, they should know that this is, these are the times when a lot of great companies are built. And so, you know, I think that I would just, you know, tell them that in, in, as, as a way to encourage them to sort of follow the path of entrepreneurialism. Mm. I have like a few more rapid fire questions that I just wanted to ask. You know, we spoke a lot around the success of Seamless and your successes around business. What would you say has been your biggest failure and your biggest lesson from that? So my biggest failure has been post Seamless days. I was really looking for a company to get involved with and really roll up my sleeves. And I didn't think that I wanted to be a CEO. In fact, number of opportunities to come my way to take over a CEO of certain companies and I passed. I just didn't think that was playing to my greatest strength. It's not that I didn't think I could do it and be like, you know, I could be, let's call it good at it. I didn't think it played to my greatest strengths. And even though I was involved in a lot of things at Seamless and the senior team really made a lot of decisions together, we had a very clear leader and CEO and Jason Finger and, you know, the buck stopped with him and he was the final decision maker on major things. And so I was very comfortable with that setup. But at the same time, I was really looking very hard for something that I could get involved with in a, in a meaningful way. And so opportunity presented itself to me, a, a company that I wanted to invest in. It was a sneaker company. I wanted to invest in it. I pursued the opportunity. And as part of the deal for myself and, and a group of colleagues and friends of mine and I to be able to invest, I was asked uh, by the founders if I would come in and be the CEO. And I didn't think that I wanted to do it, but I spoke to some friends and got some encouragement and and was challenged to sort of challenge myself and say, like, was it that I didn't want to do it? I didn't think I should do it. I didn't think I could do it. Like, what was what was the deal? And eventually I decided to take on the role of CEO of that company. That company did not succeed for a number of different reasons. But I think my decision at that point to take on the role of a CEO when I really deep down didn't feel like that was the right role for me well, was a failing that, you know, but but a great learning for me at the same time. I'm curious, do you think most companies fail because of execution? I think you can't succeed unless you have good execution, but you can fail for a lot of different reasons. That makes sense. All right. And I guess my last question, obviously, this podcast, as I mentioned at the beginning, really, we cover a wide range of topics, but from facing adversity, overcoming it, living through it, and ultimately building a life you love. So with that being said, what would be your parting wisdom to um, someone if they asked you, how do you build a life that you love? I know it's sort of a very broad question, but I'm curious what would be your advice there to your younger self? How do you build a life that you love? You know, this might go in the moto category of master of the obvious, but I, I think the best advice I could give to my younger self is surround yourself with good people. You know, I have had the pleasure of making super close friends Growing up in Miami, when I was in college, when I was in law school, you know, living in, I live in Westfield, New Jersey. I have some really good friends here. I've had the pleasure of working with some of my closest friends. I now have the pleasure of volunteering in an organization that I care about with tons of incredible people. And I married a wonderful human being. And, you know, I think as a result, no matter what comes, if I'm having a, a crappy day, if something doesn't go great in a business context, 
I have all these different people that I can lean on, rely on, give a call to, ask for advice, knowing I'm going to get real advice, even if it's not what I want to hear. And, you know, I just think that, you know, people ask me even for like, you know, my wife and I have been married for a while now and, and I have younger friends who said like, what's your advice on who I should marry or whatever. I'm just like, marry a really good person. Cause even when you're not getting along the best, cause you're going to go through periods like that. If you can like stop yourself and just be like, but the person I'm married to is an awesome person. That's such a huge piece of the puzzle. And so I feel that way about friends too. And I, I think one thing I would layer on top of that when it comes, especially to friends and, and life partners and things like that is having them be great people is a really important piece, but going to them when you need them and, and asking them for help, advice, guidance, and things like that, or just a hug if you need it, you have to leverage them for what they're best at as well. Because I know there are people out there who've got really great friends who want to help them, but they don't go to their friends when they really need them. And to me, that's a huge waste. And, and that's something that I don't think I was always great at, but I feel like I'm much, much better at now. And it's been hugely helpful, whether it's conversations about what company to get involved with. Do I move cities? It's a conversation about like, I'm having trouble dealing with one of my kids. Here's what's going on. And having friends can be like, look, I know you're saying X, Y, and Z, but it really sounds like it's A, B, and C. So why don't you focus your energy there? People who know you really well, and that can cut through some of your own BS to get to the heart of the matter, I find is as valuable as anything else in life. Hmm. Love it. Well, I appreciate the time and all the advice that, that you've given and opening up, sharing your story and um, talking for the last hour or so around your, your grief journey and your career, your professional and uh, some other fun stuff. Really appreciate it. If you want, where can listeners connect with you? So LinkedIn is a great place to do it. I think that's probably the best choice, like just a LinkedIn connection. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for the, the time, Todd. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And, and great to see you doing this and all the other writing you're doing and uh, pursuing some of your passions. Yeah, absolutely. I'm having fun. Awesome. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Bits of Gold. Hope you enjoyed that podcast. I really enjoyed interviewing Todd Arkey, sitting down with him, getting to know his story a little bit more. If you liked it, please, please, please subscribe. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts would mean the world and more episodes to come. Thanks so much. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.